Welcome to the Mike Abadir Show. You'll want to sit tight this hour as hosts Mike Abadir and co-host Gino Bacola talk to the experts, celebrities, and figures from the worlds of sports and business of sports. We cover the NFL, baseball, basketball, soccer, and horse racing, so we have all of the bases covered. Now, we just need your participation. Here is your host, Mike Abadir. Gino Bocola here on the Mike Abadir Show, August the 15th, 2019. Thanks for tuning in and listening to us. Alongside, like always, is the man whose name is on the marquee, Mr. Mike Abadir. And great time uh, as we kind of sound like a broken record. What's uh, w- What we both like to do with this show is talk about all sports because we love all sports. And there's many different directions we can go right now. Which, uh, which one do you want to pick? Well, let me ask you, you know, we were just talking off the air about, uh, you know, beverages and drinking and things of that nature. When you're enjoying consuming all all these wonderful games and events and fights and so on and so forth, what is your Gino? What is your, you know, like the Gino's favorite thing to do, eat, position, superstition, watching a ball game or watching your favorite team? It depends. When I'm watching my, the, the team that I root for in like a, Big game. So let's say like right now, if I was just going to go out and watch a Dodger game, I could, it's fine in any setting because the the Dodgers, like I'm not really like stressed about their pitch to pitch inning to inning right now. They're set up pretty well for the next six weeks, you know, but when we're talking a playoff game, like a Dodger playoff game, I don't even want to go out anywhere. I want to sit in my backyard. I have a little tent out back with like a little office where I do a lot of work. I will sit there. I'll have a drink. It'll end up being like four drinks. And I probably don't even eat during the game. I'll try to eat a little bit before. But like if it's a big game, I get really nervous. And so th- I need a drink or two just to just to even me back, just to make me normal a little bit. And and probably I'll have some chips or some sunflower seeds, something that I can munch on. Nothing that's like heavy. But I'll, I'll always have like a Jack and Coke or a Captain. I'm not really a beer, uh, much of a beer guy. I think because... I don't eat a whole lot in general. If I drink a few beers, I get full. And yeah. then, and and then I'm like uh I'm just kind of like sitting and and especially if it's like a good like IPA or like a nice tasting beer which is probably like thicker and more full, then it really just fills me up. So, I'll stick to uh the hard stuff. It gets me the, gets me uh calm a little a little earlier on and then like I mean like this past year I'm just out there getting canned with the Lakers when I'm watching them because they're having a bad year, you know. So I, that, that that's when I'm like not really paying attention as much, but I still am. But just pounding them in and uh, like if I'm watching the races, I rarely drink because I'm betting. Um, if I win, then I'll have a drink or two after. Um, and uh, and then like in football Sundays, like the first Sunday, I'll probably have some mimosas in the morning. When the first Sunday when there's all those games on, but then I end up finding myself that like, I, I like to pay attention more. And, and once I start having a few mimosas in the morning, then like that second round of games or the night games, I just have no shot. What, what about you? Yeah. You know, it's evolved over the years. Um, we were kind of talking off the air before we started the show about, uh, you know, whether I'm still a beer drinker or not, you know, anybody that knows me on a personal level will know or remember the big time party days. And, you know, I used to <laughs> go out and get tanked and, uh, you know, started over the next day and that type of thing. As I've gotten older, I've had to come up with different rules. Obviously the first one that everybody should have is, you know, when you have to drive home, you just don't drink. So for me, 
I don't even bother with a one or two like a lot of people do. I just I'm like, you know what? If I start, it's going to be hard for me to stop. So I have like a zero drink policy when I'm driving. And as I got older, I had more and more rules in place. You mentioned one of them, which is kind of combining drinking and gambling. So, you know, obviously had some pretty bad experiences in Vegas or Lake Tahoe. You know, you're out with a bunch of friends and you win in the races during the day or hit some parlays and you've got all this money in your wallet and you're drinking and you're getting trashed and the drink gals are bringing drink after drink. And then you wake up in the morning and you're like, where did my 1300 go? You know, and it just like got thrown away at the blackjack tables or whatever. So I had to kind of put my foot down and say, no drinking <laughs> if I'm gambling. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if I'm gambling, no drinking. If I start drinking, that means no gambling. So you, you got to pick one. You can't have both. So that rule got put in place. And anyways, as as I've gotten older and the hunger, hangovers have gotten worse and they worse. They do get worse, man. You know, they it's just like one of those things where kind of like you said with the mimosa, I can't even do that because I just get too sleepy by four or five o'clock. I'm out. I can't do it like I used to. So it, I've put so many different rules and restrictions in place that I rarely drink anymore. You know, probably for the last five plus, maybe even longer years, you know, I, it's just not a, a common thing, you know, and I, I, I hate to do it when I'm maybe home by myself on a Saturday night. You know, if I'm out with friends, cool, but I'm not going to get tanked just for the sake of getting tanked. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and I'm one of those guys, by the way, that like, you know, a lot of people can enjoy a glass of wine with a nice dinner at home, you know, with their girlfriend or with their wife or whatever. I drink to get trashed. <laughs> I hate to admit I, it. No, that's why, why I don't get beer. That's why I kind of don't drink a lot of beer. You know? I want to yeah. be a little, a, a nice little, uh, yeah, a, a little buzz. So for me, it's it's Diet Coke, uh, chewing tobacco, Kodiak, and and my laptop. You know, maybe for fantasy or maybe for business or or whatever. As I'm watching the games, that's kind of my you know preferred method of enjoyment. And the lazy boy, that's that that's kind of where I'm at. So, anyways, I know we've digressed from. Uh, this week at sports, but uh, given given the, the listeners a little bit of insight into Mike and Gino's favorite, uh, you know, drinking habits during uh, sporting events. Yeah. So yeah, so well, let's uh, let's jump into uh, something that we've been talking a little bit more about lately. I want to pick your brain and just ask you a, a couple questions about some of the boxing news that uh, that just came out. So if the rematch, the Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz Jr. rematch, has been announced sort of, for December the 14th in Saudi Arabia. What happened leading up to this match... After no, I believe it's Ru- December 7th. Are we sure on the 14th? Oh, okay, is it? let me check. Let me check. Uh, I th- but anyways, go, go ahead. Yeah. Um, leading up to this this fight, um, Ruiz was actually supposed to sign to fight uh, Pulev, and they had to get a temporary exception that would allow Ruiz to put up all these belts against Joshua in a rematch, and then the winner of this fight has to make sure that uh, has to fight Kule- uh, Pulev before uh, a specific date. I think uh, May thirty first of two thousand twenty. So we're going to get a Joshua versus Ruiz rematch. It's going to be in Saudi Arabia, but Ruiz, who's the champ, he doesn't want that. He wants it to be in the U.S. or Mexico. He doesn't really have a say in it, though. So this will be a little bit interesting because well, it's kind of funny too because yeah. Eddie Hearn, the promoter for Joshua, said that uh, both parties had agreed and, and signed a contract, and then uh, you have uh, I believe it was something you know social media wise I'm not sure if it's Twitter or Instagram where um, Ruiz put out a video saying that he hadn't signed and uh, you know okay, he yeah, you're right. it New is York or Tijuana seventh it is the seventh uh, December seventh okay. and seventh right now as as we're 
how we know it to be, it's in Saudi Arabia on the 7th in Durya, which is a little bit outside of Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. It's kind of being dubbed the Clash of the Dunes. This in of itself is bringing a lot of uh, good and not so good attention to the fight because there's a lot of people calling for them not to have this fight fight in host country Saudi Arabia because of all the human right allegations, human right violations that uh, have been lodged against Saudi Arabia. Um, many of them are well documented over the years in terms of treatment of women and um, homosexuality and a host of other issues as well. So a lot of people are calling for it not to be there. But Eddie Hearn, promoter Joshua, says it's an investment for boxing. Could change the landscape of boxing forever. Riyadh by itself has 6.9 million uh, population, and Saudi Arabia has 34 million population. And this the is Arab po- world is is however many million and you know over 120, 150 million, maybe even more in population. So and politically, it makes this sense is- to be an investment, right? Yeah, and this is this is weird because this is starting to get into like um, a touchy a touchy subject because over the last year, and um, Saudi Arabia is it has this plan to try to kind of change the narrative on on their culture and uh, their society. The problem is is that there's been some really bad things that have continued to go on, including a journalist who, you know, went missing and and just lots of issues. I, you know, as, as a, I'm a wrestling fan, and they've had a, a WWE signed a big deal with Saudi Arabia, and they've run shows in Saudi Arabia now for the last two years. And um, it, it does kind of rub some people the wrong way because they still are very antiquated in their laws, in the way they treat women um, uh, or, you know, homosexual gays or, you know, like like the way they just treat non-males that are like like anyone else is like a a, a sub-citizen. So it, I know that they're trying to get that uh, image changed. We don't really talk a lot of politics and stuff on this show. It's just kind of a... It, it, it's always weird when there's stuff in Saudi Arabia because now they're going to do this with the horse race too. Apparently, there there's going to be a big, huge horse race run in Saudi Arabia that they want to have next year, right around the million, time. Right? Uh, Twenty million. They want it to be the biggest, richest race in in the world. So you know they're trying to expand in things like this, and you know WWE obviously getting paid a lot to to do it, but then they they kind of try to come from another angle and they say, hey, we're we're coming there. We're trying to help them, and we're hoping that next year we can have a women's match there. You know, they're trying to kind of help expand. So um, all these events in Saudi Arabia, they're, they're going to draw a lot of attention there. And uh, it, we'll, we'll see if Saudi Arabia, you know, can clean things up and, and tweak things because they have the money. And they, they I guess there are, it seems like there are at least a few people who, who want the right thing. Uh, and, and if we can get some some big events over there and, and like money talks, Mike, right? So if they have big events with big purses, people are going to go or horses are going to go or, you know, if there's tournaments, like people are going to show up. Yeah. I mean, look, and I don't think I'm necessarily making a political statement. I'm I'm just giving an opinion here. Uh, you know, I'm not a sociologist and, uh, you know, I was a poli sci major in, in college, but what does that even mean really? <laughs> right. But uh all kidding aside, I mean, I'm of the mindset that these protesters kind of have it wrong or those who are protesting these sporting events being hosted in Saudi Arabia. I think they've got it all wrong because if what they're really saying is, you know, they have all these violations and they're backwards country and it's antiquated and, and so in its laws and its customs, its traditions, and they're still living, you know, in an era of 100 years ago, well, what better way? 
to get them to modernize than to show them some of the entertainment products from that's, the West, show them that women are involved. That's other kind of where I feel. Involved, yeah. The diversity. It's and not I, just all Arabs. These events have blacks and Latinos and whites and Asians and men and women and so on. And so, forth. so I think the more you're exposed to that, the more the general public craves it, likes it, wants it, wants more of it. And I think that's the best way to really get them to assimilate to change to, to get the change. rest of the world, yeah, you know, to, to make change. And so if they want it, I mean, that's the most important thing, right? If, if yep. they want it, they have, they have to want it. Uh, and but exactly. you hit them where the pocketbook, uh, like you said, money talks. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that's kind of how, how you get your way with a lot of the world. But I think because of their religious views, it's tied into that. It's not just going to be about money because they got more money than the rest of the planet combined. You know what I mean? So that ain't going to do much. So I think where I got the uh, the seventh and the fourteenth confused was because okay. Tyson Fury has a yep. fight with Otto Whalen on September the fourteenth in Vegas, and he, he's great, man. If you just see him, he did that the car wash not long ago on ESPN where he was going through the interviews with like all of the different shows. I think he was on like with Golick and Wingo and with uh, Max and with Stephen A. You know, first take and just kind of he did the interviews for all the different shows and he had a couple great sound bites too. He was talking about how he just thinks Andy Ruiz is just going to beat up Anthony Joshua again. You know, he says he's not a fluke. He thinks that Joshua is just like. Uh, you know, soft really is what he was saying. And then he just goes off on Wilder too. You know, he imagines how he he beat Wilder last time. He should have won the fight when they uh, in their first fight. And he said, well, the reason why we, we have Otto Whalen is because we just needed someone tall to help me set up for the Wilder rematch. And, <laughs> um, and then he was even talking about how, you know, like this is – and I've never heard somebody – it's funny because in wrestling, the wrestlers have to call wrestling sports entertainment. And everybody always rolls their eyes and kind of groans, and it's like, oh, my God, sports entertainment, are you kidding me? It's wrestling. Just come on, call it pro wrestling. And he said, you know, I'm I'm in the sports entertainment business. And it seemed, it just rolled right off his tongue, and it seemed so natural. He said, you know, I'm, ab- I'm about winning and putting on a show, which is just great. Like, I really like this group of heavyweights we have now, which is kind of a group, it, was, it seemed like it was just a group of three, and now it's become a, a pretty interesting group of four, after Ruiz, you know, had the upset of Joshua. Yeah, and and no surprise, by the way, that he's uh, making this prediction about Ruiz in the rematch because they share the same promoter, Frank Warren. So I think uh, he kind of has to, you know, uh, it's par- all part of the family. But with that said, I mean, keep in mind something. It, that That's exactly where the intrigue in this fight lays because this was one of the biggest upsets in boxing history what happened back in june for those listeners who don't follow boxing that closely or maybe used to follow it not so much anymore it was probably the biggest boxing upset outside of uh, buster douglas mike tyson and ruiz really knocked the crap out of him four knockdowns uh, before winning in the seventh the ref called the fight and uh you know anthony joshua was a big heavy favorite he's also a uh, you know fellow british rival of uh fury's so uh, I love the banter, though, is the bottom line. I agree with you. Um, it, it, I think you have to merge the sport and the entertainment in the fight game in order to make it appealing, especially that they're kind of, it seems like, maybe have some positive momentum for the sport as a whole. Yep. Yeah, and they have some personalities right now. You can't, you, you, it's t- sometimes you can't really, you can't force them. 
when they're not there or, you know, a person who doesn't have that kind of a, you know, outgoing personality, you try to, you try to put them in a, in that position and it doesn't work, but you look at these four guys and they're all kind of different, right? Like uh, the, the total underdog, the big chubby out of shape guy, Ruiz. And then you have Joshua, who's kind of been like the model. Like if you created a fighter, it would kind of look, it would look like him. Wilder's just the big, big like throwing haymakers and then fury kind of has the whole package with with the real showman in it so it's great they're all a little bit different they all bring a little something different to the table so i'd love uh can't wait for this joshua ruiz do do you have any idea what the um what the vegas line is on this i'll have to look because i i I don't know if they're even gonna get to because they're still discussing like i think ruiz is still trying to get the fight moved, but I don't. They won't be able to get it moved. Obviously, like he doesn't really have that kind of pull. So um, they may, they may be wait. They may not have released a line yet. Yeah, I think uh, it may. So they may be a, waiting. Like hundred percent official. I think so. I'll, I'll try to look it up, and maybe we can uh, we can release it on the other side of the break. Okay. Well, I think we have. A, I think we have a break coming up soon, and afterwards we can hit. Um, uh, on baseball, some playoffs. We can talk some horse racing. There's a big weekend at Del Mar and a couple good races at Saratoga. Another episode of uh, Hard Knocks for the Raiders, which. I think uh, Antonio Brown's feet got circumcised or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's take that first break right now, and we'll come back and talk about a lot of fun stuff. So stay with us. We'll be back in a few short moments. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? <laughs> Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Engelhart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Want to experience football from the perspective of a former player who also has coaching experience? Tune in to Sports Info UM with Daryl Oliver. He'll talk about the draft, play by play, and even what's happening in the offseason. Daryl has the connections and the knowledge to bring you the inside stories of the game's past, present, and future. He'll cover the camps on and off the field and everything else, football and beyond. Sports Info UM is heard Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
This is the Mike Abadir Show. If you want to call in today, we can be reached at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Mike at themikeabadirshow.com. Now, back to this week's program. Back here on the Mike Abadir Show, making the transition from uh, boxing on over to uh, I guess a little little Oakland Raiders hard knock. So Mike, in in this next episode of Hard Knocks, it was a lot as most of them are going to be about Antonio Brown and the last couple things that have happened with Antonio Brown. First, he he had the foot issue, and last week we saw the blisters on his feet from the uh, the post workout therapy that he had. He w- he didn't put the shoes on and the cryogenic therapy that he was having and. He, I mean, he has a blister on his foot that is nasty, like from the top all the way to the bottom. He said something like, my feet are circumcised because the skin's <laughs> coming off and he's, the new skin's growing back. Um, and then after that, well, not even after, while this is happening, he's also had the issue with the helmet where he has, he had filed an issue against the NFL with the new helmet rules that he wanted to use the helmet that he's been using for you know, forever. And he was at one point saying that he would not play without the helmet. So you, you trade for this guy. He's great, but he has not played a game and he's all over the news. He's been quite a handful already. You know, I think he got a lot of grief for that and uh, unjustly so as it pertains to the helmet in of itself. You got to understand something. Now, I already know the uh, comebacks to what I'm about to say, but the helmet's a, it's a pretty important thing for wide receiver, and if you don't feel comfortable with it, if you can't see as clearly, um, just that split second, right, that blink of an eye could make the difference. And, you know, he was saying he wasn't feeling comfortable with any you know, any of the helmets that they uh, brought to the table. Now, I believe there are, don't quote me on this, I want to say 26 different helmet models that they could choose from. So it's kind of hard to imagine that, uh, you know, you can't find a single one that works for you. But I guess I'm defending him because I do get it. If you've got one that works for you, you don't want to change a thing. Athletes are superstitious in as it is anyways. And this is something both combining comfort and safety, performance, etc. But the league is bringing these new helmets to the table for one reason, one reason only. It's to keep the game safe. Yeah. It's for these guys to be able to utilize the top, level technology that's out there that's been tested time and time again at all these labs, you know, even if it reduces concussions by, you know, whatever percentage, I don't even know what the numbers are, Any, then that's going to be good. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you this is that something that's hard itself. to, I, and I understand, um, Antonio Brown's kind of his side. Like if you're a player and that you've been doing something your whole life or for a long time and you get used to your equipment, right? I mean, especially if you're someone who's like a wide receiver who everything is about running quick split seconds, having to, you know, beat someone off the line or make a quick move and beat them. And if your helmet's kind of bobbing around and you're feeling a little uncomfortable, that that's like the, the difference between sometimes winning and losing. So sure. I, get, I get that. It's just, as you mentioned, this isn't something that's like, um, um, you can't wear these color socks. You know, this is, this is something that's, it's a very good positive that's yeah. for the safety and to try to elongate these guys careers but so see, let's let's face the facts you know somebody else saying the exact same thing there would not only be not criticism but it wouldn't even be in the news 
right? Mm-hmm. If it's one of the Jacksonville Jaguars wide receivers, we probably don't even hear about this thing, no. right? No, you're right. But when you're, you know, taking a balloon ride into training camp, <laughs> right? Hot air balloon, and, you know, and, this, and even when more you're than- not playing because you're not getting along with your quarterback, when you sit out the last few games, when you demand a trade, when you get to your new team and you're not really on the field, it all ad- kind of adds up to, come on, man, you're a prima donna wide receiver. Wide receivers typically are of that categorization. Generally, not all of them, but they're kind of me type guys. They want the ball all the time. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, he's at that, you know, T.O. level of, uh, you know, Ocho Cinco level of attention-grabbing wide receiver type. A couple other points uh, that I um, wanted to mention throughout the uh, the episode. And then a lot of the episode was about uh, the battle for the backup quarterback position between Mike Glennon and, and, Nate, and, P- and Nate Peterman. It was funny. Uh, Gruden was really getting into both of them because their personalities both are just so much different than Carr. Carr, it, the, I, Carr, throughout the first couple weeks, has come off, I think, maybe the best of anyone. He just comes off really down-to-earth, like a good leader and a really good teammate, and he seems like he kind of just gets it. Like, he understands what to say and what not to say. He does a pretty good job with the media, too. He, he's they, he's come off very well, I, I thought. Um, and he's looked like a good quarterback. And then you have Glennon and Peterman, who are just really quiet. Um, they don't really kind of go out and demand your uh, your attention but they both actually after a bad day one when they in the scrimmages against the rams they both improved and the entire raiders looked a lot better this week mike and their preseason game was pretty good they won and obviously they're playing against the rams team that uh, and not a lot of the, the this number one players for either side was really playing but they they saw some positive things from both Glennon and from Peterman, who had a big scramble to help them late. And they had the the rookie, uh, Keelan Doss, the hometown rookie, who got a touchdown, and he looked really good. And and their defense played really well. Yeah, that, uh, you know, that 50-yard scamper was, uh, was, was pretty cool. Um, he could only go up from how he performed at Buffalo, right? Yeah, and I think getting an opportunity like this and, and just getting into a game – and, and not throwing a bunch of interceptions, maybe he can take a, little, a deep breath, right? Because yeah. I, th- I think that was that was like what everybody knows him for is like, oh, he threw five interceptions in the one half, and he's he's been miserable every time he's ever been on the field. He wasn't in a great situation. This this might not be the greatest situation, but it's probably a much better offensive line than he's been around. And uh, if Antonio Brown, like let's say somebody went down and you had Antonio, if Carr went down and you were the backup and you had Antonio Brown to throw to, it's not the worst situation in the world right off the bat. You're already in a better spot than you were. So maybe maybe they can build him back up and give him a little confidence because it does seem like Gruden likes him a little bit. He's actually mentioned his name in, in the media a few times and people kind of laughed at him. But, you know, sometimes with, with some of the quarterbacks that we've, we've seen struggle a little bit, maybe sometimes you struggle throwing the ball. And then you run a few times, and that kind of opens everything up for you. So yeah, maybe absolutely. he uses his legs a little bit. We've seen it happen with like, you know, plenty of quarterbacks who are struggling. Bortles always did really well when he could run a little bit when he was, you know, when he was struggling. Th- those best games of his when when he'd get outside and run. And uh, I would say um, probably Lamar Jackson got into his best rhythm after he was able to scramble for a few first downs, 
feel that he's got a little bit of control in the game. And, uh, and then they, the, the Ravens put him in a good position to be able to make uh, some short completions and then get into a passing rhythm. And, um, you know, I think that was a big part of his success. So I completely agree with you regarding um, building blocks. You take them whichever way they come to you, whether it's with your arm or with your legs. Here's the really interesting thing about the not just the Raiders backup quarterback battle, but around the league. And this is a little bit of a transition into today's news with the XFL. Any of these guys that are going to be out there in the third and fourth quarter, obviously they're fighting for a job. The best of the best that get cut are probably going to be one of the remaining seven quarterbacks in this year's or 2020's inaugural XFL season. Today's news was that uh, Landry, the uh, former backup for uh, Ben Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh, uh, he was there, I believe, since 2013. And I can't quite recall where he played last season, but that's where Landry most people Jones, would Landry Jones. Yep, Landry Jones. That's where more, most people would re- remember him. So Landry played for Coach Stoops at Oklahoma uh, 2012 uh, and then go back uh, four years from there. And Stoops is one of the coaches at XFL He has already committed to the league, so he's going to be one of the eight quarterbacks. they got seven more to field, and they're going to wait until all of the cuts, and then they're going to have a seven-quarterback draft. I'm not sure if the draft is going to go for backups as well. I think it's going to go just for starters. They're going to feel – they want to make sure that they start the league where every team has a quarterback that works for them, which is pretty smart. That is. That is really smart, especially in a small league like this. That's how you have to go. You have to go at it. Sure. And it's a, and it's a good dip. That's the thing we talked about. Any leagues like this, you're you're never going to be successful if you try to do something exactly like the bigger brother, but you just can't do it as well. So you have to have a little bit of a different approach. Okay, hey, sometimes some the the reason why the NFL or the certain team struggles because they don't have a quarterback. Let's make maybe make our. By starting with quarterbacks, we can maybe make the league as even as possible if everybody has at least a decent quarterback that they feel you know they can lead their team. Sure. So let me ask you the question. Let's say, Gino, you're an NFL player. You're a quarterback. You're a quarterback that uh, the only chance that you're going to get into the game is if you're up by a lot, down by a lot, or there are injuries. Um, actually, let's take it a step further. You're the number three. Would you rather be the clipboard holder... I'm not even going to say practice squad yet, but um, but the, the, a team keeps three on the active roster. Let's just say you're the third guy, or would you rather be a starter in the XFL? Now, pay-wise, you're talking probably anywhere between 400000 and let's just say 800000 typically speaking, versus right around 200000 ish for the XFL. Now, the reason I said hold off on practice squad, because over there, you're going to be making about $6,000 a week times 17. So if, you, if, you're, dele- if you're relegated to the practice squad, right, uh, then it, there's going to be a different pay scale than the four hundred dollars to 800000 that I mentioned. So, Gina Bacola, I represent you. What, what would you rather do? You've been drafted by the XFL, or you could be a, a third stringer in the NFL? I would probably... I mean, l- let me say this: the fact that I'm I'm thinking about it, yeah. Right? The fact that I'm thinking about it, I think, says it all right there. Sure, because you know, like it should be. Uh, it really it depends on how much you believe in yourself, right? Sure. Because yeah. if you really, really believe in yourself, then you're like, hey, I'm going to go there and tear that league up, 
and then come back and put myself in a better situation to either be a number two on the roster, maybe even start somewhere. Exactly. You know, I give myself, you know, one season over there or even a few games, whatever it takes. Sure. To get contacted. Like, that's all it takes sometimes to get noticed again. So, yeah, I think just the fact that I had to think about it and immediately didn't just say, of course, the NFL kind of shows you that um, I, I, I like the way they're doing things there. And I, and I think we both, when we talked, when we saw the other uh, football league, uh, the AAF earlier this year and some other leagues, I think we've both kind of felt all along that this, the XFL, this league, and, and because of, you know, it not being like the Rockets SFL that it was the first time through it, they're going to actually be a football league with some really good people in, in places that are like running things. We, I, I think we've both felt that like this league, at least from a money standpoint, was always going to be in better shape, even just for a year or two because of Vince McMahon. Like, you know that I feel like this, they would be paying their bills or paying the, the contracts and not have issues like we saw with another startup league that didn't really have funding. I think this league has a shot. I think mm-hmm. they've got a legitimate shot to uh, be alive and kicking uh, three years from now. Sure. And I haven't really been able to say that about any of these other type of leagues. So I'm wishing it well. I think the other decision that has to be made, I, I mentioned the first kind of dilemma of, you know, a number three versus a starter in the XFL. The other biggie is college. They're not subject to the same NFL rules. That NFL rule about college players having to be out of high school for three years before they're eligible for the NFL draft is something that was collectively bargained for between the union uh, and the NFL. XFL is not subject to that agreement. They could take somebody right now from SC or from UCLA or from Clemson today. It could be that star Clemson last year's, you know, phenom freshman quarterback, right? It could be Lawrence. It could be anybody. They can, they can. So it's going to be really interesting to see which guys say, you know what, I'm going to go play. Because you, you could, could you imagine? I mean, and and why not? Some of those people coming and selling you on, hey, come be the face of our league. Come be, yeah. and we have the money. We'll pay you. We'll get you a couple endorsements. You, you know, and, and especially a running back. Sure. Why, why would I? Why would I waste, waste a couple Fournette. more years when you can why get would paid? Fournette, I mean, there were people calling for Fournette not to play after his sophomore year at LSU and just to wait until he's eligible for the draft. You know. Why not just go play here? At least get paid for it. And we, and you got to understand, like this is a, this is like a, a free market based on merit type thing. If you're not good enough, you're not going to be able to go and, and do it. You it would only be the top tier players or the players that have you know that are good enough to make to make that kind of a move as it, sure. as it should be. It wouldn't be everyone making that move. So yeah, this could open things up uh, a little bit in the. Uh, in yeah, the I think the only tricky part about it is. You got to really, really think long and hard about it because if for whatever reason you don't succeed or you get cut or whatever, can't you can't be uh, you're not going to be allowed, let alone welcome. You, you know you're not going to be able to go back to your college team. You're not going to be able to go back in and get your free education for you know in exchange for playing. That's all off the table. So mm-hmm. once once you lo- lose your amateur status, that's you're it. You're done. You're done. So yeah. that that's the main concern. I think. So, so then it becomes, okay, well, wh- if you're a first-rounder, would you risk getting hurt in this league for first-round money, right? And if you're a seventh-rounder or prior-to-free-agent type person, it's no sure thing that you're going to make it an XFL. So who really makes that decision? It'll be very fascinating to see which types of players make the move. I don't think it's going to happen for 2020. I think people are going to wait and see how the league turns out first 
but I can guarantee you they're going to pluck some guys the following year. Before uh, one more thought before, so what have you as watching the little bit of hard knocks that you've seen so far and just hearing everything that you're hearing and Antonio Brown stuff without really like diving into the schedule and this and that, what's your prediction for the Raiders this year? Like, what do you, where do you think they'll end up at the end of the year? And they're they can change a, a lot in the next few weeks. In the yeah, next I mean, month look, they're with in a tough division. Yeah, I mean, without even necessarily fully studying it, you know, you, you if you look at it from a practical perspective, you know, I think you could say they should be better than last year. But what does that really mean? Where, where does that slot them? Because Kansas City is going to be really good. You know, the Chargers are going to be a good team. They've got more talent across the board, all three phases of the game than the Raiders do. So right there, when you've got two teams in your division that are probably better than you, um, it's and, and Denver's always they always they typically put together a competitive team. Yeah, they're not a, they're not like a doormat. No, no, no it's, it's not like it's not a, it's not a Buffalo Jets Miami type no, situation. They got a good defense. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I don't know. You would really like to see the fans of Oakland, who well, I'll always think of the Raiders as the Oakland Raiders. You know, even when they're in LA, it's it's the Oakland Raiders. So, you know, do they go to Vegas coming off of a four and twelve season? I mean, that's kind of lackluster, right? Yeah. So, I think there's a lot of pressure on them to do well and to do well for the Oakland fans that have. I mean. I would not be surprised at all if there's a lot of people that are F you. I'm not going to the games mm-hmm. this year. So yeah. just for the fact that some people are buying season tickets and going to the games and, and cherishing one last opportunity to enjoy them while they're in their city, while they're in their backyard, um, you know, I hope they do well. But I would say they probably top out. You know, they'd have a good season if they're eight and eight. Yeah. You know, they're, they're probably and, in the six and ten, eight and eight window. I would say. Yeah, I think it's if, pretty disappointing if they're five and eleven. You know, they should you be a lot more competitive from your hundred million dollar coach. Yeah, and they should just be like, as you said, they should be better all around. Like they shouldn't have that many games where they get blown out. Even even the games against the better teams, those should be games where they're hanging around with them, and they maybe lose late to a like a more talented team. But they have enough now. It's starting to feel like on both sides of the ball, like you mean whether or not we you like Antonio Brown or you laugh at him or you, you're on his side. Like he's awesome when he's playing. He's yeah. really good. He's going to help your team, no doubt about it. Like, defenses are going to have to game plan for him. That's going to open up the run game a lot. That's going to make things easier on the other receivers and the tight ends. You know that's that's going to put take a little pressure off of your defense if you're not going three and out. A few times in a row. Sure. You know, I mean, all so you like, have to look at is remember how Carr had that one ridiculous season, mm-hmm. which led to his contract, which led to a lot of the car hype and everything. That was really the only year that he had, like, you know, a good amount of talent uh, on the offensive side of the ball. And so it'll be interesting to see how Carr handles this. I agree with you. Really, really cool dude. Really down to earth guy. Central Valley, Modesto Central Valley, uh, you know, Modesto Fresno Range type guys are usually pretty good people. Uh, generally speaking, mm-hmm. uh, they kind of have that up California upbringing, but it's with a little bit more level headedness. Yeah, yeah. Yep. down to earth and that type of thing. I think he's a good leader. He's one of those guys I think is, is liked by his teammates. So, you know, I, I hope that they do well. And I think that Antonio Brown is going to be a, a, a key to the success of the running game, like you mentioned. Um, so, you know, we'll see, we'll see how, how it turns out. But 
like I said, the only uh, I only have one year where I could literally say Carr had it going. He had talent around him. Can he replicate that now that he's got one of the top three receivers in the league on his side of the ball? Let's take a quick commercial break, Gino, and uh, talk a little baseball. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Racers and Rental Cars is the program for wannabe pro racers and those interested in the racing profession and automotive industry. Join hosts Cameron Ferre and Don O'Neill as they take you behind the scenes with previews and review for race day. It's about the business as well as the fun. We've got the scoop, the guests, the discussion, and the WTF moments. All you need to do is bring your ears. Racers and Rental Cars heard every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, Right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Sports continues to grow and evolve to ever-increasing prominence in today's society. On All Around Sports, host John Inglesby will connect with the leading newsmakers from the sports world, including players, owners, and fellow sports journalists, discussing the top news and events that are relevant to sports today. John will also report from and offer his experience of the world's top sports events. Tune into All Around Sports with John Inglesby, Mondays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety channel streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com this is the mike abadir show if you want to call in today we can be reached at 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to Mike at the MikeAbadirShow.com. Now, back to this week's program. Final segment on the Mike Abadir Show. And uh, we're going to talk a little a little bit of horse racing? Yeah, let's do it. Got a, the $1 million TVG Pacific Classic Grade 1 race. It's the signature race of the meet of Del Mar. And uh, typically it's something over the years that I've been super excited for. Um, you know, to me... Uh, Clearly top 10 race on the racing calendar in the country. I'm sure some people maybe have it ranked even higher, typically speaking, year in, year out. But what are your thoughts, Gino? Uh, I know that you've handicapped the entire card. You handicapped Del Mar on a regular basis. Let's just back up for a second. And let me ask you, now that we're a pretty substantial way into this meet, more than halfway through, uh, how, how do you feel about the uh, Del Mar meet as a whole up until this point? Um, it's been, well, let's say it for the beginning. From like a safety and health standpoint, it's been a positive. Okay, which is which is important right now in California. It's sad. It's sad that we have to start with that, but it, it's true the way it's been the last you know year at Santa Anita. Unfortunately, because of everything that's happened at Santa Anita, it's just left a lot of people with a bad taste in their mouth about Southern California racing. So there just are still there aren't horses here in Southern California. There just aren't that many around. There aren't as many. Horses shipping in, and then you try to run, you know, that extra day. Because remember, at Santa Anita, they were down to three days, really. It was really Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and that's when it was getting down to. And when they try to run the Wednesday through Sunday here, even when they're only running seven races, it just isn't working out. Um, there, the fields haven't been great. 
Uh, it's been a little formful. To be honest, Mike, there I was doing the first like week or two. I was doing the little videos where I would do like a play of the day, and the last two weeks, I couldn't find. And and when I do a play of the day, I'm not trying to find a fate. I'm trying to find a horse that's like five to one or over that I really like. Like I, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for like a favorite to single or anything like that. I couldn't find one horse on Wednesday and Thursday cards back to back weeks. I like the Friday card a little bit. I, I dove into the entire Friday card and got through all the races and posted a recording for of that. Um, but I just it's tough. Like you used to go throughout a card. And at Del Mar, you could play every race, and you could find a nice price horse to take a shot at all throughout the day. And like at Saratoga, uh, Saratoga meet has been a little bit better, just as far as depth of, of horses are concerned. But I was talking with uh, a couple of our friends that we've had on the show before, Darren Zocali and Brian Monzo, earlier today uh, about some of the racing there. And you know, Chad, you see the dominance of Chad Brown, and it's and it kind of starts to get a little uh, not not great. Uh, over, over there as far as the value is concerned so yeah. I don't think the summer meets have been quite as good this this year as normal and hopefully the last few weeks of that can change with the big races well whatever up. this means this is the least dollars that I've spent on either meet in as long as I can remember me too I, I have not me been too. playing very much I've been watching and I've been looking for spot plays and opportunities but uh yeah, it's probably the like if, if you add add up all the dollars spent on on either the my handle the Mike Abadier handle is the lowest uh, all time for Del Mar and for especially Del Mar but also for Saratoga but mostly for Del Mar I mean for Del Mar it's it's by a wide margin I have a high school buddy of mine we sometimes will split plays you know pick fours pick fives first maybe ten days of the meet we were all into it and we we're looking at Harrington's workout reports and. And, uh, you know, really delving in to, you know, pedigrees and angles and shippers and you name it, all the stuff that you typically look for in, uh, in, in Damar. And after the first two weeks, we've maybe put in, I don't know, a, a play here and there, you know, which uh, lost its luster for us. Now, what I will say is that the Pacific Classic is kind of the opposite of how the whole meet has been and what we've been talking about. It's it's actually a deep race. The quality's not quite there. There aren't like a lot of grade one horses in there, but at least it's a big field. At least we're not getting a field of five horses that aren't grade one horses. Right? At least we're sure. getting a field of a big, big field. Because yeah, that's I mean, the one a, thing we'll say. You got say. a 10, 10, uh, 10 horse field with a morning line of three to one. So we don't have like a really heavy favorite no. on the board. And you've got that nice distribution, at least the distribution that I look for, which is, you know, typically a seven to two and nine to two. And then you jump to like the six to ones, eight to ones and a, and a couple of, you know, 20 to ones. Interestingly enough, one of the the, the third longest shot would be a backfoot runner. Uh, so that's kind and of interesting. Because well, what happens is this is just really a, a group of grade two, grade three horses in a grade one race. And there, you know, you look at the older male division. There are a couple divisions, which is funny, that are like real polar opposites to this year. There are a few that are really strong. The older turf with bricks and mortar. The older uh, turf female with Sister Charlie. Both really good divisions. The uh, the three year old Philly division getting a little bit better. There's a couple Chad Brown horses that are okay, but the three-year-old males haven't been very good. The older males haven't been very good. The older females are good. It's really only like McKinsey is the only real 
like legitimate older horse out there right now because that's like a grade one horse and he doesn't really want to go a mile and a quarter that's why he's not in this race and he ran in the Whitney because he's better going a mile and an eighth he would have been a heavy favorite heavy favorite in a spot like this and I I do think there are you know a couple a couple ways you could go but I honestly think that the horse who is the morning line favorite is really a standout and so I'm hoping seeking the soul is around that three to one and maybe the money is spread out because to me I just look at a lot of the races that he exits and some of the horses that he's faced. He's he's a really nice horse, and he's been really good, like, very consistent. You know what you're going to get with, from him. He's going to launch a late bid. The mile and a quarter is a slight concern for me because we just haven't seen him succeed at the distance, but he's a really good mile and an eighth horse. And I look up and down in this field. I don't, I don't love anyone. I mean, I can make cases for, for plenty. But I th- I think in a race that a lot of people will probably spread out a little a bit, this might be a race where I can maybe just key in on this horse who's a lukewarm favorite, and he might actually be value at three to one. Yeah, it's kind of funny because for for me, historically speaking, and there's not a lot of rhyme or reason for what I'm about to say, just an observation for my own personal wagering. Maybe others have experienced the same thing. A lot of times when I see that there's at certain tracks, you kind of have to identify it. If you see that the morning line is maybe three to one or seven to two, first inclination is to look elsewhere because you're like, you know, they're not even confident in the favorite. It's just really funny to me how many times that horse ends up actually being the winner. And I've noticed that at Golden Gate. I've noticed that at Southern California. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of times these standouts in the California, uh, NorCal, SoCal uh, racetracks, you'll do it's not, it's not uncommon to find eight to fives, nine to five morning lines, two to one morning lines, mm-hmm. right? So when you see something that's not, your inclination is, okay, must not be that strong of a, uh, of, sure. a, of a play. And so um, I kind of agree with you. I think that probably is a, a pretty square price. If we get three to one I'd anywhere right there, I mean, I, th- I think it's worth a stab, man. Uh, and I, I agree with you. I think the, the quality of this race overall, it's not a grade one race top to bottom. He, he uh, would be, he's like, the one that in grade one races, he would still have a shot. Sure. I mean, he, he is against legitimate competition. And, and so that's why I look, you know, I look at the rest of the field and, and I wouldn't talk you off most in here. The problem is, is that I think you're, we're expecting that a lot of these horses may have to kind of jump up and improve a little bit. And if seeking the soul just runs the same race that he's been running, that's probably good enough to win. Now he He's not quite a stone cold closer, and at the mile and a quarter, he he'll probably be I think a little bit a little bit closer in here. And there's not like a ton of or or any real quick sprinter stretching out or anything like that. There are a couple pressing type horses, but you know, of, of anyone else in here, I mean, some of the other horses that'll take a lot of money. You have Pavel, who was just third over at Belmont Park in the Suburban. That was that was a fine effort, and he. He just is kind of like a measuring stick, I think, for this race because he's the type of horse who I probably would have never ever bet to win, but he's always going to kind of be around in the exotics in a spot like this with a group like this. Tenfold's been been pretty good um, when when he's on his A game. You know, the two back we saw him really good, and then just kind of never got in the mix uh, in the uh, in the Stephen Foster campaign is probably the the next horse I would use 
because I like a horse. I prefer a horse like this who's coming into the race in nice form. He's kind of on the improve. He's done really well since he's changed barns and came over to the Sadler barn and probably faced a little bit softer company out here in Southern California. So he would be maybe the next horse I include in, in, uh, in any of the exotics. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. When you're looking at it from a pick four perspective, starting in race eight, uh, if we could jump back a couple races yeah. uh, real fast. You know, I think for me personally, when I was uh, started to handicap this card for our show, um, I was looking at maybe going with the outside runners, uh, Baffert, Peter Miller's horses, Fighting Mad and Kim K. And and then as I, as I got to race nine, uh, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, it, it all starts with Chad Brown. He's got the favorite in the race. Obviously, you mentioned before how he's done, his stable's done. Um, and for me, it's even that much more lethal when you're talking about turf. So do you maybe single there and then go deep in, in race 10? Um, that's kind of where I'm leaning or flipping it around. And, you know, you have to beat some favorites to get paid. Exactly. Right? So yeah. maybe, maybe flipping, maybe doing another ticket. Uh, where I go deeper in the turf race and hope that for whatever reason, Chad Brown's runner doesn't fire because if he doesn't, then you're going to get a, a nice price regardless. And then maybe, uh, you know, maybe, maybe putting, uh, put, putting seeking the soul as the, uh, the key runner, or maybe going too deep in that race. So th- those are just some thoughts for maybe some of the listeners out there that are, that are playing. Yeah, that, that would be more of my approach would be to, to spread out in the grass race, maybe uh, maybe pick two in the uh, the Pacific Classic uh, with Seeking the Soul and, uh, and Campaign, and I, I'd probably spread out a little more in, in the eighth race, maybe, maybe throw in one or two more into chocolate, perhaps from the inside with the blinks on, I, I think it has a big shot in there, so it's a, it's a fine sequence, and and, and actually over at, at Saratoga, I know we only have a minute or two. I did uh, want to mention a, a horse or two at Saratoga. In the Alabama, which is a grade one, and it's a mile and a quarter, Dunbar Road is going to take a lot of money, and Point of Honor is going to take a lot of money. On March the 30th in the Gulfstream Park Oaks, Champagne Anyone won a race that was really similar to this, where... All the focus was on Dunbar Road and Point of Honor and Champagne Anyone won. She was really good last time out when she was second and she was better than it looks on paper because she was chasing Guarana, the undefeated filly for Chad Brown, and she moved up to challenge Guarana. Guarana spurted away. She moved up again, took a big shot at her, but Guarana spurted away. She might have been second best in that race, uh, Champagne Anyone, before she got tired and faded because she took a legitimate shot at that Philly. I think she sure. had a big chance. So make sure to include her in some of your exotics. Sure thing. And I know that you've covered them on uh, some of your podcasts and tweets. So check out It's Me, Gino B for more information. We'll both be tweeting them out. We're up against it. Wish we had more time to talk baseball. But as always, thank you for listening. Have a tremendous sports weekend. We'll be back here same time, same place. Thanks for joining us this week for the Mike Abadir Show. Please tune in again next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time for another show with Mike and his co-host, Gino Bacola, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a great week.